Let me read, before I get started, one additional verse, because we're going to hear this refrain about eight times in our passage in the second half. This is verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. So what God commanded Moses to do, he did. And that's repeated about eight times in our passage. And so if it's repeated eight times, it's probably what? Probably important. All right. Well, it's God's word, so we know it's inherently important. A Call to Holiness is the title of my sermon. The big idea, the Lord demands and provides, and that's encouraging. The Lord both demands and provides holiness for his people. I think all Christians, if you're a believer, I think all Christians would agree that holiness is important for the believer. If you agree with that, you can say amen. Okay, so I think most of us, if you're a follower of Christ, would agree that holiness is important. But I think still some may wonder in the church, what is it exactly? What is holiness? I, I want to share a story. Um, there's a brother. He's a, a pastor. He's a theologian. He's a professor. He's written some really good books. His name's Kevin DeYoung. We went to the same seminary. And I think we lived in the same house, actually, which is kind of cool. Uh, but Kevin told a story about his time at Gordon-Conwell, and him and some friends were watching a movie, and it was a clean movie, you know, it, it was, uh, I think, PG, or maybe PG-13, but they're, they're watching a movie, and there's a point in the movie where there's this inappropriate joke made. It was a coarse joke, and I think most of the students laughed. And one of the students, he tells the story in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness, stood up and said, why are we laughing at this? This is not of the Lord. This is not right. We we shouldn't laugh at this. He was sensitive to it, and he should have been. And some may look, that's that's a little hardcore, bro. Like, isn't that a little intense? Is it? I I don't think so. I, I think that's an example of holiness. Someone who is sensitive to the things of God, who is sensitive to sin. And when they see sin, they don't laugh. They're bothered by it. Now, if you're a Christian, I have good news. If you've trusted in Jesus, guess what? You're holy. You're holy. You have a new position before the Lord. You are now considered holy. And if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the church to help you grow in holiness. So if you're a Christian, you're holy. And if you're a Christian, you're on a new trajectory towards ever-growing holiness. All right, what do we see in our passage? I mean, we're at the tail end of Exodus. We have one more week. It's bittersweet. We have been in this book for a year and a half. Some may think that's too long. Some may say, Chris, it's been too short. It is what it is. We'll be done next week, and then we're going to start in John. All right, what do we see in our passage? Well, in order for the tabernacle... What's the tabernacle? It's a tent. It was God's holy dwelling place for his people. It was where he would visibly rule before his people as king by his word. But in order for the tabernacle to be effective and functional, it had to first be consecrated. Everything. Everybody say everything. Okay, good. Everything associated with the tabernacle had to be consecrated. Every piece of furniture and especially 
the priests, those men who were tasked with serving in the tabernacle, all had to be consecrated. Now, we've already seen this in Exodus, this emphasis on holiness and consecration. Recall Exodus 29 and 30. Why repeat it again? For the point of emphasis. As Alexander notes, once again, the holy nature of the tabernacle is emphasized. To become God's dwelling place on earth, the tent, and all that's in it must be made holy. Or as John Mackey notes, this is good, he says, once again, I'm sorry, there was one final step to be taken before the tabernacle was ready for the divine presence, which we're going to see next week. The glory of God is going to come down. But before that, it had to be specially set apart by anointing. Now, I think unfortunately, if if it sounds like I'm yelling, I'm not going to apologize. I'm trying to speak over the rain. Again, this foreign sound that we haven't heard in about a month, right? I'm thankful for it, by the way. But unfortunately, holiness has become somewhat of a bad word in many church circles today. Would you agree with that? It carries the connotation of stuffy, maybe legalistic. However, this holiness is God's will for His people. In fact, He demands it. He demands it. Let me read some passages. Recall Hebrews 12, verse 14. The writer says, Strive for peace with everyone. And... That, that verb strive continues, the force of that verb continues, and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Whoa. Did you, did you catch that? Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 14-16, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am what? I'm holy. We should be holy because who's holy? God's holy. Second Corinthians 7.1, Paul writes, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Can I read two more? Okay. Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Oh, He chose us to be what? Holy. 1 Thessalonians 4-7 For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So we can all agree, God's will for His people is that we be what? And not only is it His will, He demands it. Okay, It's, It's not optional. It's not, hey, it's a good idea, so consider. But no, God demands it of His people. But what he demands, he provides. Amen? What he demands, he provides. Now, there are several words and phrases 
in Exodus 40 that demand our attention. And and I want to go through these quickly. All are related to holiness. Here they are. Number one, there's the verb consecrate. Did you hear it? Everything must be consecrated. The tabernacle, all the different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, the priests who serve in the tabernacle must all be what? Consecrated. Kavash. Kavash. That's the Hebrew verb. It means to set apart as sacred. Isn't that cool? So to consecrate means to set apart as what? As sacred. To dedicate to the service of the Lord. Now remember that. That's what consecrate means. To set apart or to dedicate to the service of the Lord. So everything in the tabernacle was to be set apart to whose service? The Lord's service. All right. The next verb is anoint. Mashach. I love Hebrew. Mashach. It means to smear. It means to anoint. But listen, this is important. The process whereby something or someone was consecrated demanded physical touch or application. A holy physical substance. Anointing oil. Anointing oil was physically applied to render the item or person holy. That's important. Next, we have the verb to be holy or to become holy or to make holy. Kodesh. Kodesh. It means sacred and set apart. Again, this is what's required in order for the final step to take place. In order to serve in the realm of the sacred, the item or person must be made sacred as well. And then we see that the priests were to be what? They were to be washed. I'll stop saying Hebrew words for now. The physical washing of Aaron and his sons symbolized the washing away of impurity. So before they could serve in God's holy, sacred space, they had to be what? They had to be washed. This, this next image is so important. And we're going to actually trek it from the Old Testament to the New. Not only were they washed, but they were newly clothed. They put on new clothes, priestly garments. Lavesh. It's a good one. Lavesh. To clothe the putting on of holy garments symbolized Aaron and his son's holy status. I'm going to share a story that I think is going to drive that point home here shortly. But again, the putting on of new clothes symbolized their new status before God. So they were washed, and then they were what? They were clothed. And then we have the final verb, to serve me as priests. To, for, to perform the duties of a priest in order to serve the Lord in this most holy capacity and in this most holy place, Aaron and his sons had to be washed, newly clothed, anointed, and consecrated. They had to be set apart for divine service. Now, what is the Lord teaching us here? This seems awfully methodical, all these steps. What's going on here, God? Why is it? It seems so difficult, right? It wasn't just, hey, you you make a good priest. You have the right family lineage. Let's just throw you in there. There was none of that. 
steps had to be taken. This is a big deal, right? Why is it a big deal, by the way? Because God is big. Because God is big. Those things and individuals, listen to this part, those things and individuals that are being used in the worship and the service of the Lord must match the character of God. Those things that are used in the worship and the service of the Lord must match His character. And God is what? He's holy. He's holy. They must correspond to the heavenly realm. One brother says, speaking of all these different items that are consecrated, when this happened, when this process was applied, he writes, it, referring to these items, would no longer be part of the ordinary realm but designated as pertaining to the sphere of the divine. So, the detailed process laid out reveals the seriousness of what God demands. In order for a holy God to dwell with his people, everything had to be made what? Holy. I got five points, okay? What do we learn about holiness in our passage this sermon, because this text is all about holiness, my sermon is about holiness, and we see five things related to holiness in our passage. So listen well. Number one, holiness is necessary for God to dwell with us and for us to dwell with God. Would you agree with that? Holiness is necessary. It's not ideal. It's not just a good option That's not strong enough. It is necessary for God, a holy God, to dwell with us and for us, an unholy people, to dwell with God. That's the whole point of our passage. The mere construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings, the pieces of furniture, that wasn't enough. Before they could function as intended, they had to be consecrated and made what? Holy. It wasn't enough to identify priests to serve in God's special dwelling place. Before they could serve, they too had to be made what? Holy. All right, so here's the story. I grew up playing soccer. I love soccer. It's my favorite sport. So fighting words in East Texas. Not football, baseball. No, I, I, I love football. I love baseball. I enjoy Playing the, but man, soccer, I, I played growing up, I traveled, I played in high school, I played in college. And when I went to Africa to teach at a Baptist seminary, I was there for 2010, soccer was big in Africa. This was the year that the World Cup was held in South Africa. I'll never forget that. And there was a league, and my students and some of the professors played in this league. And they knew my background, they knew that I played soccer growing up, I'd Played in college. I loved the game. And so one of the teams picked me. That's pretty cool. And I got a jersey. That was it. I was picked up by a team. I'll I'll tell you in a moment the name of the team. It's a very presumptuous name. But I was given a jersey. There's a picture in my office. If you've been to my office, when you walk in, I have a bookshelf. And at the top of the shelf, there's this big picture. And it's me and my team. And I'm wearing a jersey that was given to me. I was clothed. I was clothed, which symbolized that I was now dedicated or set apart to this particular team. 
That was my team. And our name was, I didn't pick it, the winning team. <laughs> and we won. We won the cup. There's a picture of our team holding up the cup. And guess who scored? No. <laughs> I did. I did. I scored. Here, uh, I want to be humble. So I scored to tie the game. And we went into PKs. And I biffed my shot. But we still won. I, I just, and we were playing on, in cow pasture. It was so hard, right? You're jumping over snakes, and I loved it. But the fact was, I was given a jersey. I couldn't just play for any team. I was now set apart and dedicated to this team, the winning team. In order for Aaron and his sons to serve in the Lord's presence, they had to be consecrated and clothed. They had to be made holy. Their status had to match the one in whose presence they served. Amen? Number two, holiness is necessary for service to the Lord. Holiness is necessary for service to the Lord. Now, what did we already see, though? If you've trusted in Christ, what are you? Positionally. And I'm going to distinguish between what's called positional holiness and progressive or ongoing holiness. But if you've trusted in Jesus, you are what? You're holy. You're holy. Praise God. I mean, how does the Bible refer to God's people? We are saints. Luther said it in Latin, simo justus et peccator, we are simultaneously justified and sinners. <laughs> but we're, we're justified. We have a new status. Let me say this, and I say this unabashedly, unreservedly, Boldly, you cannot serve the Lord without holiness. You can't. You cannot serve the Lord without holiness. Now, this is a major point in our passage. The tabernacle could not function as the holy habitation of the Lord without it. And every piece of furniture within it being consecrated to the Lord. And until that happened, it didn't matter. Until every piece of furniture was consecrated, anointed, made holy, it was for nothing. Furthermore, Aaron and his sons could not serve the Lord without being consecrated to the Lord. Now, notice these two parallel phrases in our passage. Verse 10 and verse 13. I'm going to slow down here. Verse 10. Pay attention to the purpose clause. The purpose clause begins with that or in order that. Listen, verse 10, and consecrate the altar. I mean, if you were listening, everything has to be consecrated. Everything has to be made holy before it can be used for God's glory and his purposes. So, consecrate the altar. Here's the purpose clause. So that the altar may become most holy. Verse 13, and put on Aaron the holy garments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him, here it is, that he may serve me as priest. So again, notice the two purpose clauses. Number one, so that the altar may become most holy. Number two, that he, Aaron, may serve me as priest. In order for the altar to serve its purpose in God's holy place and in order for Aaron to serve his purpose as priest in God's holy place, both had to be consecrated or dedicated to the Lord. 
if you wish to serve a holy God, you must be what? You must be holy. Holiness is required to serve the Lord. Holiness is God's will for all of his people. It's true. It's his will for all of his people, but interestingly enough, he begins by emphasizing the importance of holiness for those tasked with leading God's people in worship, the, the priests. You know, Paul does the same thing. Paul ties the holiness of pastors to the holiness of the flock, God's people, those that the pastors are tasked with shepherding in 1 Timothy 4.16. Paul writes, pastors, talking to Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your what? Your hearers. Whoa. My holiness, Dave's holiness, Paul's holiness, Aaron's holiness is important for the church. The pastors and I are reading Richard Baxter right now. Richard Baxter. What's he most famous for? What book? The Reformed Pastor. And I came across this in our discussion this week. It's a great quote. Listen to this from Richard Baxter. He has this word for pastors. He says, be very careful, pastors, that you keep your own faith in life and action and that you preach to yourselves before you preach to others. When your minds, he says to pastors, are in a heavenly, holy frame, a, what kind of frame? A holy frame, your people partake of the fruits of it. Amen. Your prayers, praises, and doctrine will be heavenly and sweet to them. They will fill it when you have been much with God. That's a good word. They will fill it. The church will fill it when the pastors have been much with God. That which is most on your hearts is likely to be most in their ears. End quote. That's good. It's heavy. <laughs> it's heavy, brothers, but it's good. Um, this particular quote from Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish pastor, has kept me awake. Do you know what he said to his flock? He died young, but he was used mightily for the Lord. He said, I'm not going to do it in an accident, but if I did. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna do that. The greatest need of my people, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. That's what he said as the pastor. The greatest need of my people is my what? My personal holiness. Our holiness is how we show that we belong to who? The Lord. He is holy. Therefore, his people are holy. Only those who belong to the Lord may serve the Lord. Number three, and this is good. Holiness is only made possible by the Lord's provision. And all God's people said, he doesn't just demand it, he provides it. Isn't that good? He doesn't just demand it. He does demand it. He's a holy God. He demands holiness from his people, but he provides it. He provides it. This is an important point. Without this point, we would be Dunsky. That's what they say in Boston. We're not in Boston. I realize that. Mankind, and I think you would agree with me, church, mankind is prone to attempt to get right with God through their own methods and by their own track record. Have you seen that in life? 
we pursue, naturally, we pursue holiness through adherence to certain traditions and rituals. And yet, the Bible says this won't do. This won't do. We may think we're holy because we go to church or because our parents are Christians. There is no holiness by osmosis or association. It's true. This is not. Sorry. We must instead acknowledge the Lord's appointed means of holiness. God alone. Everybody say God alone. All right, we're on the same page. God alone provides the way for an unholy people to be holy and fit for God's holy presence. If you're looking anywhere, anywhere besides the cross of Christ to be made holy before God, guess what? You'll never be holy. If you're trying to look anywhere other than the cross of Christ to be made holy, guess what? You'll never be holy. No shortcuts. Any NASCAR fans out there? Woo! Nobody. Really? Really? Okay, thank you. Okay, Cooper, I see you. Imagine a NASCAR race where cars tried to drive across the middle of the track through the grass to make up time. What would happen immediately? They're disqualified, right? I mean, the crowd would be like, what is happening? What is he thinking? That's not going to work. So Central Elementary, their track is open to the public during the summer. And so my family and I will go there sometimes in the evening and we'll take our dogs and we'll walk and we'll run. And my boys love to race. And I'll be honest, Clark is the faster runner. But Luke loves to race, even though he knows he's probably not going to win. So Luke will start here, right, side by side, and they're going. And Clark's just gone. And Luke cuts through the track across the grass to make up time. And we just laugh. And sometimes Clark catches him still. Dude. Shortcuts don't work. There's no shortcut here, right? In order to be holy, we must acknowledge whose means? God's means. The Lord's means. Now, how, if you were listening, how does the Lord's prescribed means of holiness for Aaron and his sons point to Jesus and his means of making his people holy? Do you wish to be washed of your sins and made holy and fit for the presence of God. Come to Jesus in faith. Amen? Come to Jesus in faith. Recall 1 Corinthians, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. This is Paul. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But, everybody say but. Love the buts of Scripture, right? But you were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Oh, good news? 
That's what you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in Christ. In Christ and by the Spirit of God, we are made holy to the Lord. Number four. Holiness pertains to both position and practice. This is important. Holiness pertains to both position and practice. So there's what theologians refer to as positional holiness, number one, and number two, as personal or progressive holiness. I mean, we could even talk about justification and sanctification here, right? If you're justified, you've been declared right before God. The righteousness of Christ is given to you. If you've trusted in Jesus, you're now declared right or holy before God. In his book, and Aaron, we need to make sure we have some extra copies soon. I don't know if we do right now, but this book by Kevin DeYoung, I recently read it with a brother here. So good. The whole in our holiness. He writes in this book, Kevin DeYoung, in Christ, every believer has a once-for-all positional holiness. And from this new identity, every Christian is committed to grow in the ongoing for your whole life process of holiness. Sanctified is what we are and what we must become. Amen? Sanctified is what we are and it's what we must become. Now, we, this is good. We see the first positional holiness emphasized in the first half of our passage. For positional holiness, take Aaron, for example. Aaron, before he can serve as priest, he must be made ceremonially clean. He must be washed, clothed, and anointed. These images, he must be washed, clothed, and anointed. These images point ahead to the definitive work of Christ applied to his people. Those who trust in Christ are what? Washed, clothed, and anointed with the Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. These images point to our new position in Christ. This appears to be the sense of Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. The writer says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? How much more will the blood of who? The blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify, there's that word again, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The verb to purify here in the Greek means to sanctify. To sanctify. This refers to the act of definitive positional holiness. Now, I'm going to camp out. Who likes to camp? Ten of you. Wow, man. Where am I right now? No NASCAR, no camping. I would never guess I'm in East Texas right now. I want to camp out briefly on this image of clothing. The image of clothing more than once in the Old Testament, speaks to the definitive, righteous-making work of God. Oh, you know, I've, I've said I can preach the whole book of Isaiah in a minute and 37 seconds. Oh, no way, Chris. That's not right. You can't do that. That was my Scottish. You can't do it. There's no way, bro. A minute and 37 seconds. It's a huge book. I can. Are you ready? 
Here it is. Isaiah is framed around the image of clothing. In Isaiah 11, and I've written a 70-page paper on this one passage. If you want it, I'll send it to you. If you need help sleeping at night. In Isaiah 11, we see that the coming Savior King, the promised Messiah, will be clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. What God's people were lacking, they weren't righteous and they weren't faithful. This suffering servant is going to be those things. He's going to be clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. What God demands of his people, this coming king will be perfectly. All right? That's the beginning of Isaiah. And then we're going to go all the way to the end. In Isaiah 60, verse 21, we learn that God's people shall be made righteous. How? Now listen, this is so good. Isaiah 61.10, we see that God's people, it's the same language, will be clothed in salvation and righteousness. What? Wait a minute. So Isaiah 11, i got 30 seconds left. Isaiah 11, the coming king, the savior king, is going to be clothed in what? Righteousness and faithfulness. And then we go to the end of the book, and we see that God's people are going to be clothed in salvation and righteousness. And the question is how? Let's go back a few chapters to Isaiah 53. The suffering servant. He'd be pierced and crushed, not because of his own sins, but for ours. And the punishment that brings us peace with God, he takes it on himself. Amen? That's it. How do we get from chapter 11 to chapter 61? Chapter 53, the suffering servant. He would die for us in our place to make us holy. All right. That was a minute and 47. Went a little fast. I mean, a little behind. One more in the Old Testament. Zechariah 3, 1 to 5. Zechariah 3, 1 to 5. Oh, man, this is so good. Then he showed me, God showed me, the prophet Zechariah, God showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan, the accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him. That's what Satan does. He accuses. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. That won't do, church! He's clothed with what? Filthy garments! Oh no! Verse 4, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. What do those filthy garments stand for? Our sin, our transgression, our unrighteousness. And what does God command? Take it away. I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Isn't that beautiful? The image of clothing is consistently used in the Old Testament to convey God's work of salvation applied to his people in the act whereby he makes an unholy people holy and fit for his presence. Who does it? The Lord does it. Now, where do we see this in the New Testament? Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord. If you've read Augustine's Confessions, this was at the heart of his testimony. 
He heard this. This verse changed his life, St. Augustine. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That image of clothing, putting on Christ. Ephesians 4.24 And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are what? You're holy. You are positionally holy before God. Now we see the second personal or progressive holiness emphasized in the second half of our passage with Moses, and namely Moses' obedience to the Lord. At least eight times. How many? This is a Bible quiz. At least eight times. In Exodus 40, 16-33, we read that Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Now get this. Holiness is dedication to the Lord, which is evidenced by our what? Starts with O, ends with obedience. What? Okay, good. Man, you guys are sharp this morning. Holiness is dedication to the Lord, which is evidenced by our what? Our obedience. Now listen, this is so good. This is so helpful. I'm so thankful for this. We, look around and say we. If you're a believer, we can rest. We can rest in the Lord because of our new position. And yet, we are also called to run after the Lord in obedience because of our new power in Christ and in gratitude for our new position. You know, the Christian life, this is so strange. It almost seems mutually exclusive, but it's not. It's both and. The Christian life is one of resting and running. We rest in the Lord. We rest in His righteousness. We rest in our new position of holiness because of Christ, but we also run. We follow the Lord. We pursue Him. We seek to obey Him in all that we do. And we don't do that in our power. We do it in His. You know, John Calvin, the lesser JC, but I, I like Calvin a lot. He spoke of the believer's union with Christ as a double grace. Ooh, double grace. I like that, double grace. Rankin Wilbur, another book I highly recommend called Union with Christ, he comments, By double grace, Calvin means that both justification and sanctification flow out of our union with Christ. So if you've trusted in Christ, you've been joined to Christ. And if you've been joined to Christ, you're holy. And if you've been joined to Christ, guess what? You have new power for holy living. I love to vacuum. That's random. It's like mowing the carpet. Now, until you plug in the vacuum, what's going to happen? Nothing. But as soon as you plug it in, what? comes to life. There's power, right? If you've been plugged into or united to or joined to Christ, ow, you have new power for holy living. He goes on to write, when we are united to Jesus, we have full access to His amazing grace that covers us. Oh, I love that image. And we have full access to His power. His power that enables us to obey His commands. So if you're in Christ by faith, if you've trusted in Jesus, then you are holy to the Lord. And if Christ is in you by the Holy Spirit, then you have the power to live holy to the Lord. 
Again, I say this all the time. Again, the gospel, the good news of Jesus provides both forgiveness and transformation. New status and new power. Everybody say new status. The gospel provides, if you're in Christ, you're holy. And if you're in Christ, you have new power for holy living. Both are true in Jesus. Number five, and then we're done. Holiness is found only in, tell me. Well, it's up there. Christ. Holiness is found in our union with Christ, and it's empowered through our union with Christ. In Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've been joined to Jesus in faith, we are declared holy, and again, through Christ, we are empowered to live holy. Again, Christ gives us his righteousness when we trust in him, making us positionally holy before God. And Christ gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can resemble God. Amen? I love talking about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who did those things perfectly? Who put those things on display through his life and ministry? Jesus. And who does Jesus give us to resemble him? The Spirit. Amen? That's what holiness looks like. It looks like Jesus. There is no holiness outside of Jesus and his cross. Jesus washes us. Jesus clothes us with his righteousness. He washes us. He clothes us. And he gives us, he gives us the Holy Spirit for holy living. That's good. Let me end with two practice steps. Both for unbelievers and for, let me start with unbelievers. And then I'll look at believers. If you're not a Christian, this is for you. Trust. Trust in Jesus to become holy or set apart to the Lord. Trust in Jesus to get right with God. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it through tradition. You can't do it through your track record. You've already failed. I failed. If you want to be holy and fit for God's presence, if you want to be in a relationship with God, trust in Jesus. Have you been clothed with the righteousness of Christ? Look to the cross. Look to Jesus. All right, for the believer, if you're a believer, look at me. Do you long for holiness? Do you long for it? Are you pursuing it? Do you think about it? Is it important to you? What steps, brothers and sisters, are you taking to grow in holiness? Are you taking drastic measures to get rid of sin in your life? To put sin to death? Are you establishing accountability with a fellow believer? Saying, hey, listen, I am struggling in this area. I want to be holy. Will you help me? Again, God gives his body, the spirit and the church and the word to overcome sin and to grow in holiness. Are you taking advantage of those things? Are you regularly spending time with the Lord in the Word and in prayer? I mean, how foolish to think, okay, God tells us if you want to become holy, if you want to grow in holiness, look to my Word, lean into my church. I got it. There's got to be. No! If God is saying, this is how you do it, what should we be doing? It! Consider fasting. Consider fasting. Fasting is when a believer chooses to go without food 
for a period of time in view of a specific spiritual purpose. Instead of eating a meal, the believer takes that time to read, pray, and study God's word. It's a way, fasting is a way for the believer to say to God, I'm desperate for you, Lord. I'm desperate for you. I hunger more for you and your word and your presence and personal holiness more than anything else. Let me end with a prayer. It's a good prayer. It's Paul's prayer for the church in Thessalonica. Let's pray this together. This is from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Pray with me. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.